It's Friday afternoon. We've locked the door in order to more accurately depict the jail we have created for ourselves with our mind. And also because it's time for another edition of our weekly podcast, Tales from the Brown Desk. I'm Jake Rigney of Rigney Law, LLC. With me, as usual, is my law partner, wife, and the destroyer of all dress shoes, Cassie Rigney. The poor soul tasked with listening to this mess is our host, Terry Olm. Friendly reminder, Tales from the Brown Desk is a free-flowing conversation involving two foul-mouthed attorneys. It may include graphic descriptions of sexual activity, violence, and the kind of bad jokes that keep a married couple from strangling each other. It may not be suitable for children, in-laws, ex-girlfriends, on-again, off-again slam pieces, and that guy you hooked up with at prom. (laughs) And that includes me, by the way. I totally almost hooked up with a guy at prom. I'm kidding. I didn't go to prom. Uh, (laughs) listener discretion is advised. Here's Terry. Hello, everyone. Hi, Jake. How are you today? I'm I'm good, Terry. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks. Hi, Cassie. How are you? Hi, Terry. Great. Thank you. Good. So we're jumping right into this today and we're going to continue our series. This is like part 10 of 79, (laughs) a walk through the criminal justice system in Indiana. Last week, we talked about trials, and this week, we're going to continue our adventure through the swamp and take the next step, which I believe is sentencing. Would you agree? Yeah, that is usually what comes after a trial if the verdict is guilty. Obviously, if the verdict is not guilty, then the next step is like you go out and have beer (laughs) with your client. Um, But no, for, for those people who are found guilty at trial, yeah, the next step is well, you know, actually, it's probably the pre-sentence investigation um, is, is really sort of the next step. Um, the next thing in court is the sentencing hearing. But before that, in Indiana, there's a pre-sentence investigation. On all sentencing? All felonies. How about misdemeanors? I believe you can request one on a misdemeanor if you want, but that is very rare, um, at least in Marion County. It might happen some other places. What is the purpose of the pre-sentencing investigation and who is putting that report together? The probation department does the investigation and they compile information from all over your criminal history, your personal history, medical history, family history. And uh, the purpose of it is to give, you know, the judge an idea of who you are. Um, This is particularly important if there are open terms in a sentence. You know, if there's a plea agreement, you want it for those open terms. If you're convicted post-trial, everything is open from the minimum to the maximum. And uh, that's a standard standardized way that, you know, every person that comes before that judge is going to have the same evaluation done on them so they can get a global picture of this person to help them decide what is appropriate to happen in this case. They get your medical history? Is that like not a HIPAA violation? They're not getting like your surgical records or anything like that. I mean, they're going to interview you. And I mean, you certainly wouldn't have to disclose that. It would be, you know, beneficial, you know, to disclose some stuff and maybe not other stuff. Um, But there is medical information in there. And that's one of the reasons, along with private, other private information, that they're confidential. Um, The pre-sentence investigation report gets filed by the probation department after Um, after the interview, but it is not available to the public. It's made available to the lawyers, the judge, the defendant, obviously, to make sure that um, it's accurate. 
but beyond that, um, it is not available to anyone else, and not anyone else can just go to the court and request it. It's protected by Administrative Rule 9. Good. Well, and this is kind of where, you know, if you went and had your um, record expunged and you land in front of a criminal court again, that you know, that kind of thing would come up. It would mark the record would show that, you know, maybe it was expu- it was expunged, but those, you know, the, the authorities would still be able to see that. I think we when we discussed expungements, the record's not really gone. It's just not disclosed publicly. When somebody is sentenced, does this happen immediately after they enter a plea agreement or the jury trial or is it set for another day in time? Every case is a little different. And every court, as I've said before, is quite a bit different. The short answer to your question is yes. <laughs> uh, it, it can happen either way um, is is the, the more full answer. Um, there are many times, especially in misdemeanor courts in Marion County, where you'll do the guilty plea hearing and the sentencing hearing, uh, one right after the other. You won't even notice the difference. Um, essentially, the judge will just do the guilty plea and then say, okay, I'm sentencing you pursuant to the terms of the agreement. And he sentences you and you're done. Um, and so a lot of times if you plead guilty and you get sentenced in a misdemeanor case, that just happens all at the same time. Now on felonies, it's a different story. And sometimes the court will set it out for a guilty plea and sentencing hearing and do them both at the same time after they order a PSI and after they've reviewed it. But sometimes the court will go ahead and take the factual basis and do the guilty plea first and then set the sentencing hearing out and it's just kind of the judge's discretion sometimes the judge asks the prosecutor what they want sometimes they even ask the defense attorney which way they prefer it with an eye toward at least making sure that the defendant pleads guilty while the defendant is inclined to do so because sometimes people change their mind in between guilty plea and sentencing and the the court wants to avoid having to go back to having a trial when they didn't need to have one. So typically they're they're done together, especially on minor cases, but um, they can be split up. How are the sentences determined by the judge? I think as we've discussed before, each charge, each level of offense has a sentencing range. Uh, at least with the felonies, each felony level also has an advisory sentence. And the judge, you know, knows the minimum and maximum. And the law says for them to start their consideration at that advisory sentence. And then based on this global review of this person and the, the, the weight that the judge would give those mitigators and aggravators, the sentence moves closer to the minimum or closer to the maximum. This is kind of a touchy subject, the racial disparities sometimes in sentencing. Do you think that's a lot of times because of the person's background and in the pre-sentencing investigation? Why would sometimes one person committing a crime could get a different sentence than someone else committing the same crime? Yeah, so there are a lot of reasons why two people who committed the same crime would receive different sentences. The biggest reason is that everyone's criminal history is usually a little bit different, okay? But there are aspects of sentencing that are sort of concerning and certainly racial aspects of the criminal justice system that uh, can be very concerning. The system tends to punish African Americans at, at much higher rates compared to their percentage in the population, right? So, 
African Americans, uh, you know, they certainly aren't 50% of the population. I don't even, I don't think, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I don't think they're 25% of the population in, in the country, but they are incarcerated at significantly higher rates. The, the prison population has a much higher percentage of African Americans than the population at, at large. And you have to ask why that is. I'll tell you why it isn't. It isn't because there are judges sitting on the bench in 2020 in the United States who are thinking, oh, that guy's black. I need to give him more time. Um, now, that isn't the only kind of racism that exists in the United States, though. Okay? Um, so even though I'm saying I don't think any particular judge that I've ever seen or talked to has ever said, well, this person's black, that sort of overt racism that we would sort of associate with, you know, the South in the 50s. I don't think that exists very much on the bench anymore, but there are all sorts of implicit bias that remains in effect, and we're also dealing with the fact that African-American communities, because of redlining, have not had the opportunity to gather the same type of wealth that other communities have. And because of that, they tend to be higher crime neighborhoods, which causes them to get policed more because politicians are always trying to say they drove crime down. So you send more police into any particular neighborhood, there are going to be more arrests in that neighborhood. That's the nature of policing. When the vast majority of people in this country have committed a crime at one point or another in their lives. And look, how do we fix that? How do we change these facts? I don't know off the top of my head. I, I do know that we need to reverse a lot of the things that we did to get ourselves into this situation and to at least admit it and be aware of it and admit that it's still a problem. And right now, I think that's the, the issue that this country is reckoning with, is trying to figure out how to come to terms with all these things, right? Slavery ended for you know most people in the 1860s, but that doesn't mean nothing bad happened to African Americans for over 100 years. Right. As long as 30 and 40 years ago, there was still overt racism, just where people were just allowed to make laws explicitly punishing black people. And even in the 80s, with the way we punished cocaine um, differently, depending on whether it was crack, which was predominantly an African American drug of choice, or powdered cocaine, which was much more a white person's drug of choice. We're slowly coming to terms with all that. We're slowly reckoning with it. As you can see, it, it's causing more violence and reckoning with those things is continuing to cause our country growing pains. I know it, it seems funny to talk about something that's 200 and some years old and say it has growing pains, but we're still growing and we're still learning how to deal with the problems we've created for ourselves that we've been struggling with since the beginning. Does sentencing mean jail time? No. You know, we've talked before. You, uh, you can even have a totally suspended no probation sentence if it's the right charge with the right history. Um, sentence is just what's, what's going to happen to you. You said suspended. So a suspended sentence, can you? When you suspend a sentence, like when, when the judge gives you time, you may say, okay, you're guilty of a misdemeanor. You're sentenced to 365 days, 365 days suspended. 
what they're leaving out there. You're suspend you're sentenced to 365 days in jail, but they are suspending that, meaning they're 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 not going to have you serve that and have you do probation instead. And then assuming you successfully complete your probation, the the jail time remains suspended. What does executed time mean? So executed time is the time on your sentence that you'll be required to serve when you're sentenced or shortly thereafter. Sometimes they'll let you come in on the weekend. So if a person was sentenced to 365 days, but they were required to serve 10 days, then there would be 10 days executed and 355 days suspended. Um, And so the, the executed portion is the portion you serve right away. That can be in jail. It could be in a work release facility. It could be on home detention. It depends on the sentence and the type of case you have, whether you're eligible for that or not. And in some jurisdictions, there probably are other ways to serve an executed sentence besides those three. But those are the three common ones in Indiana that judges typically give people. Now, let's say someone, either by plea agreement or by by trial, they're, they're found guilty on numerous counts and they're being sentenced on these counts. Do each of those sentences, like say they get 365 days executed time on one of them and 365 days executed time on another, is that two years in jail or can they serve that one year and one year together? What you're talking about is whether sentences are running concurrently or consecutively. Concurrent means they run at the same time. Consecutive means one after the other. And in the state of Indiana, what they look to is, was this a single course of criminal conduct? So if it's all one thing, it's all going to run concurrently all at the same time. If they're separate incidences, they'll generally run one after the other. Um, One caveat to that, it could be the same course of criminal conduct, if there's individual victims who have been injured, there's potential for those counts to run consecutive instead of concurrent. Yeah. The analysis on whether a judge can can sentence consecutively or not is very complicated. The statute starts by giving the judge a lot of discretion. And then there are some times when the judge doesn't have discretion and the judge either has to run them concurrently or the judge has to run them consecutively. And it, it's so complicated that I can't really say, like, if this, then that, because there are so many different permutations. But that's just the statute. That's before you get into the constitutional aspect of it, because what Cassie is describing is essentially double jeopardy jurisprudence, right? Where they can't take the same crime and punish you two different ways, two different times for it. But that plays a role in it, too. And it is, even for people who've practiced criminal law for a long time, it is very complicated. Sometimes I still have to go back to the sentencing statute, check again to see what it says, because there's entire lists of crimes that are called crimes of violence, and those can be run consecutive even if they are in the same course of conduct. And then some of them are capped at the next highest advisory level. It's really complicated. I know you didn't probably expect a 10-minute answer when you asked that question, But it's so difficult to figure out that without just looking at an individual case and then the statutes and then maybe even reading some case law, it's really hard to to figure out exactly what a person's maximum sentence is, unless they're only charged with one count. And if they're only charged with one count, then it's easier, unless they're habitual eligible. And then it's complicated again. 
It does sound complicated. What is an enhanced sentence and why would someone be given one? When you're talking about sentence enhancements, those are the habitual laws. Um, We have habitual traffic violator, habitual substance offender, and then just a regular habitual offender in Indiana. And in all three instances, when you've picked up the requisite number of prior convictions in those categories, then it stands alone as a sentencing enhancement. So you get a new case, they add it, if they prove it, you'll get an additional set amount of and it demands executed time. If this is, say you only got in trouble one time, can it be a a sentence reduction? No. If you'd never been in trouble before, or if you'd only been in trouble maybe once before and it wasn't serious, that would be a mitigating circumstance. So when Cassie was talking earlier about aggravating and mitigating circumstances, that's something that would likely be a mitigating circumstance that would cause the judge to to think that maybe they ought to issue you a lower sentence in the range rather than a higher sentence. Is it uh, safe to say that judges go easy on first-time offenders? I wouldn't say easy. I don't think there's any of my clients have ever thought what they've been through was easy. And that includes when I've gotten complete dismissals. I mean, it's taken in consideration and there that, you know, you would expect them to get a lighter sentence relative to someone who has prior contacts with a criminal justice system. Right. Your question is, don't take this the wrong way. Your question is not stupid, but it is, it's similar to a conversation we have with our daughter a lot, uh, where we explain to her that uh, easier is not the same as easy. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, So if you have no history, will they be easier on you? Yes. Will it be easy? No. A year on probation, even a year on probation, is not easy. It's a pain in the ass. You got to go down and meet with your probation officer. Imagine if you don't have a driver's license, how much fun that is. They don't come pick you up. (laughs) Um, You know, you have to take drug tests. You have to report when they tell you to report, even if it's for no reason at all. If they want to come search your house, they can come search your house. If they find a bottle of beer in your fridge, you're going to get violated. The nature of a probation department as well is that there's a lot of civil servants working there. Some of them, I'm certain, love their jobs and are super nice to deal with and and like everyone they meet. Some of them do not. And some of them are not easy to get along with. Some of them don't want to be easy to get along with. Some of them want to make it hard for some reason or another. And so... Probation, even which is generally just about the lightest sentence you're going to get, just nothing but probation, even that is not easy. Home detention is even harder. And we haven't even talked about work release or prison and the trouble you can get into in those places. Um, So, yeah, no matter what, it is not easy. What are the different types of sentences? Maybe not all of them, but um, I know you can go to jail, maybe get put on probation. But what other things can a person that's found guilty face? Well, you know, sometimes there are treatment programs. I mean, it's really just those handful of things, work release, home detention, jail, prison, Um, And when we separate home detention and work release, home detention is when basically you're stuck at home. You can leave your house for approved uh, ventures like work, 
school. Otherwise, you have to be at your house. Work release, you lay your head at the work release facility, but then again, you get to leave like you would for home detention, but you're not at home. I remember a prosecutor got in trouble for making someone do push-ups for his sentence. I remember that. I think it might have been on a diversion. So, I mean, as long as it's lawful and accepted by the court and the parties agree to it, I mean, it it really could could be anything in that range. Yeah, I mean, as long as it doesn't violate the the rule against cruel and unusual punishment. Um, but yeah, I remember this made the front page of the Indianapolis Star back when I don't know we didn't have a national pandemic and a and a, a very interesting president <laughs> uh, who wanted to make the news every day. Um, a yeah, a prosecutor had a defendant and he was charged with some minor misdemeanor. I remember the the prosecutor's name was Dan something and former military yeah former drill sergeant or something some like do you remember this no but that's totally what a former military person would do is think push-ups is a i don't know if he was or but here's the thing the kid the defendant was getting ready to go into the military ah and so normally they would have him do like community service or something like that for a diversion so he does a little community service work when he proves he did it they dismiss his case but I think he was like shipping out in a couple of days. So he didn't really have time to go do all the community service work. And I think the prosecutor was like, oh, he's going into the military. Oh, cool. He's getting great. Fine. You know what? Do 20 push-ups. I'll dismiss your case. Go to the military. Right? Not a big deal, right? Right. Especially because the kid obviously was fine with it. He did the 20 push-ups, went and joined the military. But somebody was watching that day in court and they did not like it. And they reported it to the star and the star ran it on the front page and it really turned into a big problem for that prosecutor. Yeah, it, it was one of those things. And I think, you know, he probably just wanted to drop it and let the kid go. But I think he felt like he probably couldn't just do that. So we wanted something. I mean, there was no ill will. I remember that prosecutor. I remember feeling that that situation went totally out of control and he ended up losing his job. Yep. Now, he didn't get fired, but he he quit over all the and, and I think all the hullabaloo about it. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm so old. <laughs> Hullabaloo. <laughs> I just used hullabaloo. In a sentence with a straight face. Holy <laughs> crap. Anyway, I know that it all affected him quite a bit, and um, and he quit. That was back when my wife and I were part of the cool kids who used to go outside and smoke, and he smoked too, so we saw him out there sometimes just always looking super bummed about his, about his job because of what happened, and he didn't last too long after that. I think he quit within a month or two. When was this? It was in the aughts because I remember I, w- I wasn't. Was that out of court 10? I think he was a prosecutor in court 8. 8? I think well, then it was, that was my court. But, but it must have been after you. Maybe. Right? Yeah. It um, was in the aughts. Yeah. Baby prosecutor. Would have been 2005 or so. Kay. But he was not. But he was not like a 25 year old. He was a. He, I think he was a new lawyer, but had been a. Um, second career thing. Yeah, second career kind of thing. It's a sad story. Yeah, it is. It's a sad tale from the brown desk today. I like that. Sorry, Dan. So can a sentence be modified? Sometimes. <laughs> I love these lawyer answers. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Prepare to get lawyered. 
Um, it, it depends. The fir- one of the first questions is, you know, what kind of plea? If, if it was a plea, um, was it a set term plea? Um, plea agreements are contracts. And so if you sign away for three years of the Department of Corrections, you can't go behind the back of the other party of that contract and say, hey, judge, undo this contract. Um, you're kind of stuck with it. I think we've talked about that. But then if there's, you know, if it's after a trial where there's no limit on the court or, you know, there were open terms potentially, um, there are some other requisites. Ultimately, a modification puts the judge back in the same position they were on the original day they sentenced you. So if the judge at that day never had any options, it was five years in the Department of Corrections, going back for modification doesn't get you any other options. Uh, The judge will be able to do whatever he could do on an original day of sentencing. Right, and the only exception to what Cassie said is if the prosecutor agrees to it. So if the prosecutor agrees to modify the contract, then you can go back and change it to something else. But loathe (laughs) to do that um, because uh, it's just more work for them, right? If they have to go back and renegotiate all sorts of contracts, they already negotiated and that's more court time. Um, You know, they're not typically looking to do that. Um, And a lot of times they'll say the sentence was appropriate and tough. I'm not changing it. Now, as far as um, credit time, and this may be jumping into like actually serving the sentence and not being sentenced, but is there like, if you, I don't know, if you're sentenced to say a year, 365 days in jail, can you get like good time if you're really good in jail? Can you get out earlier? Do you have to do those 365 days? Well, there's good time credit and, you know, assume you earn it, you know, as I don't know which judge you go and kick a, kick a guard every day. You don't get it. Um, but, uh, yes, you can get, you can get credit time and depending on your charge, you might be able to get credit time on home detention or work release. Yeah. Based on, uh, the credit time calculations that were in place in 2010, uh, I've been married for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding um yeah there are and and poor cassie has also been married for 20 years um no uh yeah it depends these days it depends on what type of crime you get convicted of how much credit time you get back before the criminal code was changed in 2014 everyone got a day for a day so if you were good Every day you were in prison, your prison sentence would get cut in half. Now it's usually a quarter um, and sometimes less, depending on what you were convicted of. When you get to the Department of Corrections, there's additional educational and treatment credits that you can get above that. Yeah, and those aren't available in my marriage, unfortunately. (laughs) So we're going to cut to a short commercial break. And when we come back, we will bring you the latest Florida Man news. The update on Florida Man is brought to you by Pilot Pens. Pilot pens come in blue ink, black ink, probably some other colors. We don't know. We just mention it because we want them to send us some free pens. Seriously, the Rona got us on here begging for shit. For real, I love Pilot Pens. I get the best plea agreements ever when I ask for them with Pilot Pens. Right. They don't smear or smudge on paper, but the ink wipes right off when I accidentally write on my computer screen. What a country! This message not actually brought to you by Pilot Pens. Jake, why are you writing on your computer screen? 
I need to put a comma in this <laughs> brief and it's just a period. So I figure if I just write a little comma on it and over the period, the judge won't notice the difference. <laughs> and then I'll print it out and it'll be fine. <laughs> All right. So the insider reports that Florida man was arrested this past week for attempting to cash a winning scratch-off ticket at the same convenience store he stole it from. Oh. (laughs) Yes. Florida man stole 13 scratch-off tickets from a Speedway convenience store. Uh He immediately started scratching them off to see if he won. Um, And when he found a winner, he went back to into the same store to cash it. The store workers immediately called police and Florida man was arrested. And the lottery ticket he was trying to cash in was worth $30. I think it's safe to say that it was not his lucky day. Oh, that's good. Great pun there. Great job, Terry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing, right? Uh, Stealing a $30 winning lottery ticket is not the dumbest thing I've ever heard of, right? People steal things worth way less than $30 sometimes. Um, Meat. How many times have I seen a case where somebody stuffed meat in their pants? It just, it happens like a lot. More than you would ever think you would. I mean, it's a regular thing, apparently. Right. Um, Kool-Aid, like packets of Kool-Aid. Um, so, you know, I I really wish that, it, it is amazing. The Florida man was so stupid that he couldn't even wait till shift change. Right. Like, <laughs> like wait till, wait till it's not the same lady, bro. Well, what I can tell you is that um, I worked on a case as a prosecutor and on the state side and somebody was opening up a gas station and what you don't know, all of those have serial numbers. And so once those were logged, no, you weren't going to win those anyway. Um, But what this owner of this gas station had done, they tried to say the entire role, like they knew there was a winner in there. And they went and scratched the whole roll and then tried to claim the $10,000 winner or whatever. Um, I think the the extra part to this story is that they didn't turn off the inside surveillance. Oh, my God. So they were actually <laughs> on video scratching it off and winning and see them jumping. It. There's no audio. But um, that was where I learned there are um, serial numbers associated with all of those. Um, so those can be tracked um, through what the lottery commission or, or whatever. Yeah, and there was a case several years ago when I was a prosecutor. I remember because it was in the court I was assigned to. I didn't work on it, but there was a case of sort of insider theft from the lottery where someone who worked at the lottery had gotten info on what scratchers were going to have big winners on them, and, and somehow they managed to get somebody to go out and buy them. I don't know how this plot unraveled because it sounds friggin genius once you find somebody inside the lottery who's willing to work with you but somehow it unraveled they all got caught and i don't know what i don't remember what happened to them but um but that was a pretty smart that was one of the smarter theft schemes i ever saw sounds like a movie plot it does oceans lottery 11 (laughs) now the new york times reports florida woman entered a stranger's home to abduct florida baby what Yes. It's not cool. No, it's not cool. A ring doorbell video captured Florida woman knocking on a door at 2.15 this last Tuesday morning before making it into the house. This is one of two abductions Florida woman attempted that night. (laughs) 
Yeah, Florida woman was seen entering the home after a child opened the door at 2.15 in the morning. And inside, she was allegedly trying to snatch a nine-month-old baby from a 12-year-old that was holding the baby. The mother heard all the commotion and chased the Florida woman away. Hmm. What are your children? Is this, you said two in the morning? 2.15 in the morning. And the children are answering the door. But just moments earlier, Florida woman had been in another nearby home and allegedly tried to snatch a one-year-old. And after Florida woman was arrested, the police found two scared kids, both under the age of five, at Florida woman's home. She has two children of her own that she left at home to go try to steal more kids. I mean, it sounds like mental illness to me. Yeah, I can't. uh, I keep waiting for this to turn funny, Terry. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's not funny. You know, we well, we have children at home. So do you. I, I don't. I don't have any jokes I can make about this. Yeah. Hey, baby stealing. That's so Florida. That's well. I'm glad they caught her. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Now, Channel Eight in Florida reports that a 92 year old Florida woman <laughs> says she was burned, bruised, and is struggling to sleep after she was handcuffed during a traffic stop. Old Florida woman was driving back from the store when she turned on her street. I like how she's not Florida woman. She's old. <laughs> this is old. Well, she's she's ninety two. She was getting close to her home when she saw flashing lights behind her. She says, "What happened next makes her struggle to sleep at night." Old Florida woman says the deputy followed her to her home and asked her for her license. The deputy put scolding hot handcuffs on her as he questioned her about a rolling stop. This caused EMS people to come and bandage up the woman, and nine days later, she still has bandages on her arms. I think, I could be wrong, I think she's going to sue somebody. (laughs) Yeah. We hear complaints about officers' behaviors on traffic stops all the time. Um, that sounds extreme if she still has bandages on, but frankly, it doesn't sound all that bad. You probably couldn't have known. It sounds like what if you have really, I mean, those handcuffs had to be really hot, but I can't imagine that combined that, that the officer was intentionally like roasting them on his dashboard just to put on this old lady's thin skin. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll show you, old lady. Um, <laughs> Try not being so old next time. One more story out of Florida. NBC7 in Florida reports that Florida man was arrested after shooting himself and then lying about it. Yeah. Yeah. Deputies responded to a report of a man coming to a hospital with a gunshot wound to his leg. They say the Florida man told them he and his girlfriend were at a boat ramp when the when two black men pulled up and tried to rob him. He told deputies one of the men had a gun and shot him in the leg. The deputies began their investigation. They seized the cell phones of both Florida man and his girlfriend and they found incriminating evidence on the phones, such as photos of Florida man taken with a a gun that he described being shot with. When questioned about it, he admitted that he lied and he shot himself and threw the gun in the river. Yeah, this reminds me of a a case I had when I was a prosecutor, as as almost every story does, where a, a guy shot himself with his own gun in line at a Mr. Dan's hamburger stand. So he had this this Glock and he shot him. It was a small one. Um, he shot himself with it. And so obviously he didn't like the gun after that. He sold it. 
it ended up in the hands of a murderer who uh, killed a guy in a street argument. Um, And that was the case I prosecuted. And it was weird because they only retrieved part of the gun months later out of a pond, but they knew that it was the same gun that had fired the bullet that killed the kid because they'd already test fired it from when the guy shot himself. Oh. So like, I don't know how it is in every jurisdiction, but in Indianapolis, if they take a gun from you for just about any reason, they test fire it. And they just put the bullets away and they keep them so they've got them. They know what bullets coming out of that gun look like. So if you use a gun later on for any other thing and they already have that profile, they'll match it. So that guy shot himself, then like four years later it got used in a murder. But because they already had a test fire from it, they could say that was definitely the gun that killed the kid. Wow. And that is all the time we have for today. All right. Florida was dark this week it was a little dark it was there i don't choose the what the people in florida do yeah i neither do i (laughs) because if i did it would be different stories to report here yeah well i look here's the challenge to all our florida listeners side note we have zero florida listeners (laughs) um you know come up with something funny you know bust the nudity back out for us it's still got to be hot down there Maybe it's because there was a hurricane going by. There were two hurricanes going by. Maybe everybody stayed in this week because of the hurricanes. That might have been it. Anyhow, thanks for listening to Tales from the Brown Desk. Please remember, while we may discuss legal issues and provide information regarding the law to our listeners, we do not intend to create an attorney-client relationship with any listener. Our advice may not be applicable to some legal issues. Please consult with an attorney you have hired to review your legal situation before you attempt to apply the things we have said to your case. Tales from the Brown Desk is produced by Rigney Law and edited by Terry Ohm. You can ask us questions, just email Terry at T-E-R-I at RigneyLawIndy.com and entitle your email question, Podcast Question, and we'll read it on our next podcast. Unless we start getting too many questions, then we'll just read the good ones. We'll never get too many good ones, though. Uh, Buzzsprout says now we have 22 listeners, up five from last week. Woohoo! That's right. Our ratings have improved. Even my poor relatives in Philadelphia, though, they stopped listening. Um, But we still have one listener in Paris, France. Not Paris, Texas. Paris, France. We're international. We are. (laughs) The the international phenomenon. Tales from the Brown Desk. Our newest listener from the furthest away appears to be San Jose, California. I do feel like mentioning that I hate the San Jose Sharks. I hate them. Go Red Wings. Now we'll have 21 listeners next week. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you, San Jose. Thank you for listening anyway. The attorneys at Rigney Law do not comment on their current pending cases. Nothing we've said in this podcast is a comment on a case we are currently working on, even if your name is Chad or you had sex with one of us at prom. Goodbye.